Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlips to Swetmik territory within the unceded and traditional lands of Swetmikulu. As settlers, we take very seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. So folks, if that introduction sounds a little unfamiliar, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we've been working to incorporate land acknowledgements on the show, and this is our working model. Yes, so uh, it'll change over time. We've talked a lot about our concerns with land acknowledgements that become really rote or performative. So expect yes. it to change and expect it to reflect the content of individual episodes where that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, the other thing that's a little bit different today, Joe, is that we have a special guest. Yes, we do. It's a returning guest. It's me. <laughs> it's me, Amario. <laughs> it's me, Luigi. Let's see Lorenzi here. Um, hello, friends. Hey, we're so excited to have you back. We're Thanks so excited for to have you back. Me. I was going to refer to you entirely uh, in this episode as Groot refers to you, which is Lucia. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> That's my favorite. That's <laughs> really, very adorable. Really puts the strength on the yeah. <laughs> well, we've invited you here because actually this episode was your idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're talking today about the Netflix series, which is two, they call them parts, but they're kind yep. of seasons. There's 20 episodes. It's done now. Anyway, it's called No Good Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And before we really dig into... No good, Nick. Lucia, I need to know the genesis of this. How did you stumble upon this? And then why did you bring it to us? That isn't meant to I was going to say, that sounded aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> why have you brought this show into our lives? <laughs> Since I've been listening to the podcast, I have been watching a lot of Netflix, like a lot of YA Netflix. And then it recommends things for me. And when this came across my recommendations, I'm like, I'm not familiar. I have like, I have no idea what this is about. But the reason why I started watching it was because I'm like, sweet, like a young actor of color who kind of looks like me, maybe surrounded mm -hmm. by white people could be interesting, could be problematic, but could be interesting. <laughs> and it's, and it's both. both. And it's both. <laughs> and having watched the first seasons of some of these series, it's like, well, why not? Mm -hmm. And then I watched it all in a couple of nights. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so folks, this is a show that's created by David H. Steinberg, as well as Kichi Kogan. I'm not really familiar with their work, but I've gathered that a lot of the young adult cast on this is from other like Nickelodeon freeform kind of shows. So they're established properties, but if folks are jumping into this new, you probably recognize the parents who are, of course, Melissa Joan Hart from Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, as well as Sean Astin from everything from Rudy to Lord of the Rings. And Ted McGinley, who is from Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, right. He's the bully. Yes. Yeah, okay. the jock. Yeah. So this show has an interesting premise that people haven't checked it out in advance of this episode. Basically, the logline is a family finds their lives turned upside down when a young street smart grifter, aka con artist, shows up on their doorstep claiming to be a distant relative. 
And if that sounds like a bit of a high concept premise, you're not wrong, but the show is honestly quite a bit more complicated than that. Yes, it's so complicated. <laughs> I have never seen a show like this before, lady. Mm -mm. <laughs> no. No, when Lucy was first watching it, she was texting me the whole time and she was like, <laughs> what is happening? I don't understand what this is. Why <laughs> are they mark, doing this? Mark, mark. <laughs> oh, now it's really good. Oh, I'm super sucked in. And then it was, you guys have to do an episode of the podcast on this show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I can't process this by myself. <laughs> yeah. Why not contact people who I know who have a podcast about it? <laughs> it is an extremely strange show. The series overview from the original pitch document, which I found online last night, says, this is a show we've never seen before. Correct. <laughs> a, a serialized multicam for kids with equal parts comedy, mystery, and heart. It's a show about people doing the wrong things for the right reasons. First and foremost, it's about a girl seeking revenge, but finding a family instead. But it's also about a family that has to lose everything before they realize what's truly important is something that no one can take away. I mean, I kind of agree with the back half of that sentiment, but also, can we talk about the child endangerment and also <laughs> the laugh track? <laughs> it's very, that is the most unsettling part of the show, I think. You know, we've talked about this before, the troubling of the sitcom format when we talked about One Day at a Time. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly in the same vein as One Day at a Time, in that there's quite a lot of darkness that underpins the narrative. I mean, this is a child whose father is in prison. He's constantly being attacked, brutalized, and victimized in prison. He centers his own desire for revenge over and above his own child's well-being. The family she goes to live with, well, the foster family she first ends up with, are using their foster kids to commit crimes. The yes. family that she is attempting to grift is entirely a family of monsters. <laughs> They're honestly atrocious They're people. They're the worst people. And all through it, you've got a laugh track. It's very strange. Yeah. One of the things that I struggle with is that, like, I know that this is a show by, for, and it's largely about white people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that later, but I... It always makes me wonder, like, who is supposed to be laughing at this? Yes. Like, I'm not sure. Like, I, for sure, as a person of color, and we'll get into the whole, like, Italian mm. family yes. reveal thingamabobber soon. But I was like, <laughs> I find this hilarious that this girl is going to rob white people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Probably I found the show was interested great. in that. <laughs> yeah. Which it's not. And no. I think that's why I ended up texting Brennan being like, you have to see what they did with this. It is really strange, right? Because you think it's actually going to address issues of privilege, but mm -hmm. it cowers instead behind this idea of family. And it has all the pieces to be much more complicated on race. I think my favorite, and I don't mean like I like her, but my, I think the most interesting character is the daughter, who is this... Mm -hmm. Molly. Yeah, Molly, who's this Instagram influencer on charitable issues. Yes. But she doesn't actually care about any of the charities no. because it's all about clout. And she chooses everything based on like what's going to look the best on Instagram. So in the second season, there's this culminating fight with her fellow obsessive volunteer friends about the fact that she wants to save the blue whales and they want to actually like go to a soup kitchen and like hand out food and actually interact with people like human mm -hmm. beings and actually raise money. And she's like, no, we're saving whales and taking pictures of it. <laughs> 
And I, I love everything about the way her Instagram activism is really challenged by the show, but it could choose to go so much further and it doesn't. The show is really obsessed with personal responsibility as sort of the end of the road concept and not interested in looking at any of the social determinants of Mm -hmm. the downfalls of these characters. Yeah, it's almost an insular story at the end of the day. Like it's very much about Nick and this family and the relationship between the two as opposed to addressing the fact that we have met people like this family before Mm -hmm. where they present well and they seem to have all of the trappings of wealth and privilege and these kinds of things but they're incredibly uncritical of Mm -hmm. how they reach the stage that they're at in fact they're so oblivious that they become hypocrites Mm -hmm. and that's really what i think the show derives a lot of its perceived comedy if we're trusting this laugh track from (laughs) is just how oblivious these folks are to their own privilege and yet it only talks about them as though they are individuals and not representative of larger society Mm -hmm. yeah which is i think why so for folks who haven't seen the show eventually you find out that the thompsons very deliberately and systematically targeted the restaurant that nick's father owned and ran Mm -hmm. and drove them out of business Mm -hmm. but what's interesting to me is that just looking at the lead actor who plays Nick, mm-hmm. Sienna Agadong, I assumed that this was going to be a story of like a white family who did something really terrible to a racialized family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's this twist where it's like, but it's an Italian family. Yes. And we can we can talk about the complex history of like how different ethnic groups have been folded historically into whiteness. Like that's a whole thing in and of itself. But I think that that's what made it a story about an individual family with like a fancy, fancy restaurant driving out a small local business. Because if it had been an explicitly racialized family, then it has to be about race. Then it has Mm -hmm. to be about gentrification. Then it has to be about these larger issues. But it's deliberately writing it as whiteness that allows it to be this very individual story. Yes. And that absolves the Thompsons of truly monstrous stuff. And I think that for me, as it gets unpacked, all of the different components of what the individual family members did to bring down this business... Like, I'm just horrified. It is horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. The episode where it all unpacks, Mm -hmm. it's quite a thing (laughs) when you find out. Like, you knew they were sort of oblivious people. Mm -hmm. But then when you find out how actively, monstrously they have gone after this family business down the street from them. And you're right that it's aggressively trying to not be about race. Mm -hmm. But you do have this underlying question of authenticity, right? There's this episode in the first season when we find out that although she is a decorated Italian chef, the mum has never actually even been to Italy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she's very defensive about that. And that's sort of contrasted against this working class Italian American family running this pizzeria who get obliterated by her desire for power Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but even that is complicated in the second season because there's a reunion episode where they unlock a time capsule and it's revealed that liz 
She actually had a nemesis back in high school who has gone on to become quote unquote more successful because Mm -hmm. she has been to Italy and she has a private yacht. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like the series reframing the wealth and the privilege of the Thompsons by saying, well, they're not that bad because there's also these other people who have more. So aren't Mm -hmm. they really indicative of the American dream where they were just doing what they needed to do to survive? And you're like, oh, this is weird and icky now too. We're definitely supposed to read the Thompsons as coded as sort of average mm-hmm. yes. in spite of the fact that their home has a solarium so <laughs> and they have two cars and then they buy the son a used car so they technically have three vehicles a used Lexus <laughs> by the way <laughs> and the fact that like the amount of stuff that Nick is able to heist out of their house mm-hmm. without them really noticing anything is going on is sort of gobsmacking too mm-hmm It's just interesting. There is so much to talk about around privilege that the show chooses not to go near. Yeah, but it also isn't afraid of raising it. It's like, well, this is here, but we also don't really want to address it. And maybe they would have had the series not been canceled after Mm -hmm. this two-part first season. But I also don't understand how this show would have continued either. Mm Mm-hmm. The show is honestly a conundrum wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a riddle, (laughs) because it makes no sense in any one point. Well, I want to come back to this idea of individual responsibility in the show, because one of the things that happens at the end of the second season, spoiler, (laughs) is that Nick forgives the Thompsons for everything they've done, but unforgives her dad. Mm -hmm. And there's this scene in the prison when she goes to say kind of a final goodbye to her father. And it's like, yeah, they did all these horrible things. Yes, they worked actively to destroy us, but you didn't have to borrow money from the mob. Like in the end, none of the systemic pressures against this family end up mattering because what matters is Nick's dad made a bad choice in relation to those pressures, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Firm pivot and recasting of blame. Yes, and that enables the Thompsons to become her safe place to fall in the end, which I still find just wildly baffling. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a sitcom-y kind of trope, right? This Mm -hmm. reliance on the idea of finding your perfect family, and maybe they're not the blood family that you came from, but rather your chosen family in this case. And the series really works overtime over the course of the 20 episodes to present Nick and the Thompsons as a good fit, despite mm-hmm. the fact that she is actively working at odds and trying to steal from them the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for me that that scene where she's talking to her father in prison and it's like, you didn't have to do this really made me realize how different this would have been if this were a black family. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Like, you can't just say, well, you shouldn't have done this. Mm-hmm. We know the disproportionate amount of black and indigenous and brown people who are incarcerated for petty, petty things. Mm-hmm. And that that's what rips families apart is the deliberate policing of this. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, like, absolutely wild to me. And then wilder still that at no point in the show... Does Nick get to process how utterly traumatizing yes! any mm-hmm. of this is? Like, there are a few moments where she's on the verge of tears. But she always has to cover it up because somebody's yeah. always coming in. Well, yeah. and it's almost always when she does get close to dealing with it, it's almost always framed around manipulation. Mm-hmm. So, like, when her phone gets discovered and she starts to articulate why it is she would need a private phone in a series of foster families and 
you start to get at the horrible things that must have happened to her up to this point. But it's framed as her telling that to get herself out of trouble, yeah. not her coping with mm-hmm. this trauma that she's she's undergone. Yeah. And the way that yeah. it's framed when I was reading some reviews last night, they framed it as this young girl who's lying to everyone, including herself. And I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting way of hmm. framing it. Like that one is lying to oneself instead of actually having to deal with and process the fact that there are literally no adults in her life that are interested in her well-being. No. And yep. one, one of the weirdest things is, so I also want to talk about the dysfunctionality of the Thompsons as a family. Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting things is the work that Nick has to put in to quote unquote rescue mm-hmm. all of these terrible relationships mm-hmm. that the family members have with one another. And she does that by just literally paying attention to their individual interests. Yeah. But that workload, it's genuinely terrifying when you think about the fact that she's not only lying to people all the time she's not processing her own grief and trauma but also she has to present as a perfect human being to like this family that is meant to be the safe haven all i can think about is how exhausting it would be for nick (laughs) and grew degrees Mm -hmm. i think the one thing that i will say is that i think that sienna agudong's acting is very strong Because you can tell that she's lying to the Thompsons as the audience and that she is acting. But Mm -hmm. it's this layer of like, you can tell that as as the character Nick, she is acting. Does that make sense? It does. It's very clear that the Thompsons just don't get it. I think that she is quite good Mm -hmm. in this role. I actually think... Where are you going with this? (laughs) (laughs) I think strangely think that many of them are quite good but that they all seem to be acting in different shows yeah right yeah that's a good point (laughs) like sean astin has some really great moments (laughs) over the course of the series i particularly like betrayed sean astin at the end of the series when he finds out that nick Mm -hmm. was a con artist all along he gets mean. He gets real mean. And I, I quite like, I mean, the show is very interested in blaming Liz for a lot of the family's problems. Yes, she's a terrible mother and woman. Mm-hmm. She's a very bad mother. Her interest in her own career is a negative for the family. She doesn't cook for them. We're very interested in the ways in which Liz doesn't listen to her children, sort of negates the contributions of Ed to the family. We're very interested in all of that. And I actually really like a lot of the moments where Melissa Joan Hart seems to be on the verge of giving up on the whole family altogether. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll just go live at the restaurant and leave <laughs> the rest of you to fend for yourselves. Like, there are moments that I quite like in all of these performances. Kalama Epstein plays Jeremy. He was in The Fosters. He was the love interest of one of the younger characters on The Fosters. And I think even he, I mean, he has a tendency to mug in a big way, but he has, a, he has some really quite lovely moments around the vulnerability that he feels about his own coming out. Mm -hmm. All of them, maybe not Molly, but all of them (laughs) have moments where I thought that they were really compelling. But I do feel like everyone in this show is acting in a different TV show. So I found last night David Steinberg, the creator, he put his statement out when the show was canceled back in September. And I'm just going to read you part of it because I feel like part of the problem with this show in general is that it had incredibly lofty goals Mm -hmm. for what is possible to execute in 26 minutes. He says, 
we feel we made the show we wanted to and we're so proud of blah blah blah. and they says this was family entertainment with complex themes about morality and forgiveness we showed the world's first serialized multicam i'm not sure that's true the first gay kiss on a family show i'm certain that's not true the first combination of comedy drama and mystery in a sitcom i don't even think that's true Mm -mm. um (laughs) so he's never watched television before (laughs) (laughs) it was like they wanted to they're more interested in being groundbreaking and Mm -hmm. challenging and reinventing a genre than they are in telling a coherent story and i think for the actors that becomes really difficult right because what is your goal then as an actor in this role is it to critique motherhood conceptually or is it to be a believable mom in a multi-camera sitcom and i think this is actually where it's important to recognize how much changes when you introduce a laugh track mm-hmm. it should be noted that the laugh track is actually a live studio audience so they filmed all but i think the last couple of episodes with an in-studio audience weird which means that they were doing multiple takes and likely rewrites of jokes on mm-hmm. this show to garner different kinds of audience reactions which as a performer is going to lead you to be more broad and comical, right? So I think that's why we get some varying levels in the line deliveries and the performativity. And I feel like it it comes out a lot in the Thompsons because they're supposed to be terrible, but also you have to like them. Otherwise, this show doesn't work. Yeah. And then I feel like you can also see the shift when it goes to more traditionally canned laughter. So it's like inserted artificially by audio technicians in the last couple of episodes. Because there's not a lot of funny in those no. last two episodes. Because it, pardon the expletive, but like, <laughs> has gotten real serious. Mm-hmm. At yes. Point. Like, people's lives are now on the line. Ed could go to jail. Yes. Or Nick is going to go to juvie. Yes. Or back to that horrible foster family. Yeah. Her father is looking at additional time because of all the money she has stolen on his behalf. It's dark. It's so dark in the last two episodes. And then, yeah, you get these bursts of laughter that are Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable. I found them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they're meant to be cueing you as an audience. This is okay to laugh at. But none none of it is okay to laugh at by the end of the series. Like, none of it. I would argue that there's actually very little to laugh at in most of this Mm -hmm. case. Like, Mm -hmm. we're laughing at things where Nick is like, oh, wow, I'm going to have to risk being exposed to the police if I don't, you know, steal this diamond. Or if I don't lift $20,000 worth of cell phones from my schoolmates. And you're just, you're thinking, no. Like, it's as fake as the laughter Brenda just delivered. (laughs) Because that's not comedy. Comedy no. is pratfalls. It's yep. people spitting out Liz's hors d'oeuvres at the casino night because she has cooked up weird paste on crostinis. <laughs> yes. Like those are genuinely funny moments or the early stages of mocking <laughs> Molly and her Instagram activism. That's funny. And some of those moments are genuinely funny. But as the show gets deeper and darker, like there's one moment when... I think it's the first episode of the second season when Nick discovers why she's stealing this money for her dad, that it's not going to a lawyer at all. And Mm -hmm. she goes to visit her dad in prison and he's had the S beaten out of him. He looks terrible and it must be so traumatic to be Nick in that moment. And then at one point he says something and they punch in the audience laughter. Mm -hmm. And it's wrong. It's 
it's just not right. It's just not right. It's not dark comedy. It's no. not Breaking Bad, where you're thinking, oh, this is morally complicated. It's like, these two things do not go together. No. And yet here we are. Why do you think they did it in front of a live audience? Like, you can have a multi-camera show without an audience. I can only speculate, mm -hmm. but I can't help but wonder if they sold this to Netflix as this is going to be a, <laughs> a dark and gritty take mm. on mm. a traditional mm. multi-camera sitcom. Mm. So they probably looked at things like One Day at a Time and said, we could do that, but what if we tackled a high concept premise of this girl who's grifting families? And it's like, that sounds good, but then also we're including things like child abuse. Because... Mm -hmm. There's so much child abuse. There's so much child abuse. Show. Like the inclusion of a live audience. Like I wonder, given that, you know, some of these shows are given the green light for one season or, mm -hmm. you know, a season that gets made into two parts on Netflix. Mm -hmm. If a live audience was a, maybe like kind of like an insurance policy to be like, look, like people are genuinely engaged with it, um, <laughs> right. which, which may be easier to sort of prove than if you're relying solely on a laugh track that's. Like, where you're not capturing, like, the natural beats of the of the comedy. Mm. Mm. But, yeah, I think, too, like, I just, I don't, I don't know how there would be another season to this. Because I feel like there's very little to... Well, the cliffhanger is just weird. Can we talk about how weird the cliffhanger is? The cliffhanger yes. is weird, and you can't explore that without having to actually deal with the trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't be, like... Oh, I'm going to actually have to figure out my family's like long-term involvement with these horrible con artists who are yeah. involved in a very, very broken youth and care system. Yeah, so that's the, at the very end of the very last episode, you discover that this grifter foster family that Nick ostensibly got saddled with just by sheer chance and ineptitude of the foster care system, which by the way, can we talk about how bad the foster care system comes <laughs> off in this show? Yeah, not great. <laughs> Instead, her mother, who had died when she was a baby, is, we discover, at least has some kind of longstanding relationship with this foster family. Mm -hmm. And so where is that going? A alongside the fact that the Thompsons have now ostensibly completely forgiven her, except that these are bad people. Like, there's no way that the first mistake she makes mm -hmm. isn't going to immediately draw up all of this history, right? Yeah. Yeah. I rewatched the first episode last night because it had been a few weeks since I'd watched it. Well, and there's a lot of parallels too, right? Yeah. Like the con that she pulls, mm -hmm. or she nearly pulls in the first episode is duplicated as a way to catch the grifters in the finale. Exactly. But it, upon rewatching it, I was more horrified because like, she shows up, she's clearly in distress, and they're like, let's have a vote on it. And they're debating yeah. her humanity while mm -hmm. she's listening from the stairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And her life is equated with the price of a car. Because yeah. that's mm -hmm. a deciding factor is whether Jeremy's mm -hmm. car will be compromised if they take Nick in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I, I think the critique then is there is a sustained critique of the foster care system. But I don't, I don't think it's evident to people who don't already know the problems with it. Mm -hmm. It becomes then like, oh, ha ha, isn't it funny that there's an administrative paperwork error? Mm -hmm. Not, this is like a long-term systemic problem of youth being abandoned and put in horrendously abusive situations. And mm -hmm. it's not just that the system is doing its best, it's that the system is actively perpetrating these harms. And I don't know how you, you can't have a second season where you have to talk about that with a laugh track. And 
we meet, I think, three other foster kids over the course of the mm-hmm. series. All of them are white. Yeah. They're also all terrible. Like, there's no yeah. there's no contrasting opinion that, you know, like, oh, I actually had a positive foster care experience. It's all like, if you end up in foster care, you are effed. Yeah, that's definitely a huge component. And that the foster care system is not just overtaxed and underfunded, but that there are actors who actively seek to undermine the care of children. Like, I'm thinking about the woman who, for basically 20 bucks lies to the thompsons about nicole's identity on behalf of the grifters right Mm -hmm. it's like everybody can be bought and everybody is operating to harm these children but all of the children themselves are white and it comes back to this larger sort of whitewashing that's happening in the show right even the actress playing nick is filipino american Mm -hmm. from hawaii but she is I guess, nouveau whitewashed using the sort of whiteness and respectability of Italian-Americans yeah, to reframe her identity. And, you know, I think there's a throwaway line. It might be in that last episode or somewhere around there. But when she talks to her father, they specifically address the fact that, like, she got her color from her mom mm-hmm. as though it's kind of like, but mm-hmm. let's not deal with that because the mother's not here. Yeah. And then when we see the mother's picture, she's still mm. coated white yeah. mm-hmm. right the show is weird man this show is yeah. a lot <laughs> yeah. yeah and i think that the weirdness like melissa joan hart described the genre of the show as a serialized family mystery dramedy and i think what's getting lost in some of the reviews is like genre matters i think that mm-hmm. it's important but i think that the strangeness of the genre becomes a way then that people aren't sort of engaging with the other weirdnesses of it like it's mm-hmm. not just that there's a laugh track it's about what we're meant to be laughing meant at. Meant to be laughing at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if either one of you have seen it, but there's a formerly TBS and now HBO show. It jumped between the two, mm-hmm. between seasons. But there's a show called Search Party. Mm. Have either of you heard I of haven't. this? I haven't. No. So it's not quite a YA show. It's more of like a millennial Gen X or kind of 20-something show. But the whole premise is just about how up their own butts these kids are and they end up getting embroiled in a murder mystery that is self-created but it's very much a harsh critique on the priorities that these people have and they're all monsters and every season they actually actively get worse and like the show is very actively condemning them and interrogating their privilege and basically their class issues it's in New York, so maybe that means something different in the way that it's not small-town America wherever No Good Nick is set. Mm-hmm. But No Good Nick is so desperate to be this traditional family sitcom with a modern edge to it. But then it doesn't want to take on the responsibilities that come with class and race and all of these other issues that it should be interrogating as a result. Because it's too busy saying, oh, but we're, we're quirky we're a comedy that's also a family sitcom. Joe, it's interesting that you say that it's set in small town America because it's actually not. It's set in Portland. Oh, I got no Portland feel from that. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think that's a fascinating aspect too because Portland has this long and complex history with whitewashing the city's mm-hmm. identity. And much like this show does the same thing. I'm very kind of fascinated by the choice to set it in Portland for Hmm. seemingly no narrative reason no i fully thought that this was a suburb in like california (laughs) nope nope i know why you thought that because it seems like it but no very strange right 
Yeah, I think I assumed that it was maybe like somewhere in the Midwest, maybe. Mm. Maybe like a Chicago, maybe like a Philadelphia. But yeah, I mean, I think that's strategic, right? Because if you don't actually specify where it's set, then you don't actually have to engage with the historical complexities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's sort of a throwaway line when we're watching the unraveling episode when Mm -hmm. Nick's dad says like, you know, there used to be space in Portland for people like us. And it's a comment Mm. on gentrification, right? Mm -hmm. But if you think about the way in which Nick has been whitewashed by the show itself, Mm -hmm. that becomes... I mean, it was an opening to do something interesting, which they have chosen uh, not to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could probably just go on and on about all of the weird issues in this show. And yet maybe we can wrap up by talking about why we find it so compelling and watchable at the same time, despite all these issues. Before we get there, Joe, I was just, I wanted to ask you specifically about the coming out of Jeremy. I don't know if you managed to watch that episode or if you had any thoughts about it. So I watched the episode where he gets caught Mm -hmm. by Nick, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I didn't get the opportunity to watch the episode, the penultimate episode, where he decides to tell the truth. So I read the summary of it, Mm -hmm. but I don't quite have a clear indication of how it plays. It's very strange again, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because by that point in the series, we're at the canned laughter bit. And so it's meant to be a very pratfall-y kind of physical comedy you know, he has this coming out playlist and PowerPoint <laughs> and Alexa starts playing it at an inopportune moment. Mm. And it's a moment for Jeremy to learn about losing control, right? And you right. don't get to control every component. I do think Jeremy's queerness is an interesting component of the narrative as it relates to Nick because it's he's been suspicious of her all along. But the one thing that they share is that she knows before anyone else. Yes. And they both have a secret yeah, and she never uses it against him the way she uses other secrets against other members of the family. Yeah, I was surprised that that's not what she uses for his downfall, because she she has particular things that she uses to undermine Molly and Ed, but then mm-hmm. she doesn't use that. She uses the miscounted electoral votes mm-hmm. to take yeah. down Jeremy. And it's interesting because it says a lot about Nick's character and values that that's the choice that she makes. Yeah, yeah. And about the show's values, I think, too. The show's very interested in getting credit for that representation, that coming out, that kiss. Like, it really wants to get more credit. Like, mm-hmm. it's not the first kiss. In- well, no, Brenna, it was the first time it's ever happened. <laughs> Makes me mad. <laughs> I mean, it happened in one day at a time, like, literally on this network. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I believe on the Fosters, which and was on the on Fosters, <laughs> and on Degrassi. Like I can go on. Yeah, um, many decades, in fact. <laughs> but it is very interested in getting credit about getting that particular storyline, quote unquote, right. And I'm kind of interested in that as social currency. Yes, mm-hmm. because it is still wrapped up in maleness, cisness, and whiteness. Like Jeremy's coming out is not. Oh, he's in no danger. No. In Portland, in an affluent family, in an affluent and aggressively liberal family, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. um, Yeah, what made this show so compelling? Let's start with Lucia. Lucia. Hey, hello. <laughs> you watched this show so fast. I really did. <laughs> I truly did. What was so compelling about it for you? I mean, I think that I, I felt a lot of compassion for the character. Mm-hmm. And seeing that portrayal of... I mean, honestly, I watched it because of the thumbnail. And I'm just like, I just want to see more young actors of color. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, I didn't have that content when I was growing up. So it's the same reason that I was really excited about 
Marianne Spear being cast as Black in the Babysitter's Club. Yes. I mean, I study trauma. I'm a trauma scholar by training. And I was waiting for... It's not that I don't think that humor can't be explored or used to explore trauma, even trauma like this. I just don't think it was done with any sense of understanding. No. no. Because the producer, director... Yeah. I think he did American Pie. Oh, and he's one of the writers. David Steinberg is one of the writers, not of American Pie, but of American Pie 2. American Pie 2. And American Pie it. presents the Book of Love. <laughs> so, yeah. yes. Which isn't to say that one cannot also shift genres and do all that kind of stuff. But I would have loved to see this written by and for mm -hmm. people of color. Because I think it could have been done so spectacularly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did love the digs at Molly's performative wokeness that that was an actual enjoyable mm -hmm. thing for me. Like you can have all the vocabulary and not do it right. Yeah. Which is also like the show also has the vocabulary itself and isn't doing <laughs> yeah. it right. Yeah. Very meta. Um, <laughs> super meta. And I mean, I'm glad that it ended where it did. I don't, I couldn't, I don't think I could stomach another season of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I just watched it because I just was so confused. I was just so confused. Yes. Yeah. Just the directorial choice is also very interesting. Andy Fickman directs the whole series, most famous for directing the entire series of Kevin Can Wait, the Kevin James uh, after King of Queens oh, right. vehicle. And also he directed, I believe, all of Liv and Maddie, which was a Disney Channel sitcom. Mm -hmm. One of those Disney Channel things where the main actress plays two characters. So Liv and Maddie okay. are identical twins and one actor plays both of them. Very Disney Channel kind of stuff. Right. So on the one hand, probably the safest and most boring sitcom in recent network television history and something very much within the genre of YA. So I can see why they chose him. Yeah. But this is not someone who has facility with complex material. No, no. And you can see that, right? Like even mm -hmm. in the choice of sets and the way that the action is set up, we've got more or less two principal sets. There's the Thompson house and then there's the school and all the action revolves around that. I mean, the fact that it's shot in front of that audience means that we're not going to get any legitimate exterior shots. So the most we ever see is, I think, a back alleyway. The back alley for the restaurant and then the front porch and the side yard for the house. But that's it. Oh, and the park. The park. The most static park in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but that level of artificiality that comes from exclusively shooting on a set because mm -hmm. you're catering to the audience also mm -hmm. lends this that kind of traditional sitcom feel which is already at odds because unless you're basically archie bunker and doing all in the family there's a trepidation around taking issues seriously because it's so hard to do that and also do comedy and critique mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so any final thoughts hmm. um, i think it's really interesting to see the attempted mainstreaming of some pretty complex familial trauma that doesn't mean I think it does it well, but I do find all the actors quite charismatic and charming. Um, I guess it's a lesson for me that I'll watch pretty much anything if I find the actors compelling enough. I mean, there's a reason that Sean Astin and Melissa Joan Hart were cast in this, right? In yeah. part, I think, because they realized, oh, these are likable, well-known actors that people are going to naturally gravitate to. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are likable. And I think it's an interesting choice for Melissa Joan Hart to take on a role like this because Liz is not supposed to be likable. She carries the blame for much of what happens within the family dynamic. Mm -hmm. And yet I still enjoy watching her. So it's an interesting choice that way. I should say, Joe, just as a callback to our 
episode on Love, Victor, the actor who plays Felix. Will. Hmm? Sorry, Felix on Love, Victor, Will on this show. Yes, okay, fine. Do it succinctly, see if I care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's an interesting role for him because he's introduced as a potential love interest for Nick and then revealed to be also a member of the grifting con artist family. And almost immediately, like just yeah. done away with, okay, we can't even give her something happy mm-hmm. and no. nice to have. It has to be part of this terrible narrative <laughs> that she's embroiled in. And then he comes back and he rescues her, quote unquote, with the bus ticket and the fake ID, mm-hmm. but then also betrays her back yep. to the family, also delivers her this potentially terrible and scarring news about her mother. Mm-hmm. He's a lot. <laughs> He's a plot point. Yeah. He's a narrative device. Yeah. yeah. With good hair. Yeah. I do like his hair. He's easy <laughs> to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that because orphaned children and abused children, like, this is a YA trope. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be so revolutionary to, revolutionary, sorry, to actually hear from youth in care mm-hmm. or people who have been in care. Because those stories often don't get told nope. by the people who have gone through that. It just feels like such a missed opportunity. And because it's such a niche thing... And you don't know when we're going to be able to see this kind of content again mm-hmm. on a mainstream platform like Netflix. Because I think they'll be like, well, this was our foster. This is the one and done. This was the foster kid mm-hmm. show. And so there's just a bit of disappointment in that. But again, those are larger issues with who gets to pitch to Netflix and what gets mm-hmm. accepted and what gets greenlight. So, yeah. I do think in terms of YA properties about the foster system, I think the fosters for all its cheese and schmaltz and it's a freeform series. So it has a lot of both. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a much more interesting and complicated look at the foster system. And it's much more interested in integrating both race and sexuality and gender identity as barriers to appropriate care. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's an hour long drama and they didn't try to shoehorn a laugh track into it. And that has some that has yeah. some impact. Right. So, yeah, we talk a lot on this show about wanting to hear more stories from within the foster care system, particularly more own voices series from within the foster care Mm -hmm. system. We get a lot of novels that are told from the perspective of foster kids, but written by foster moms is a really common framing. Mm -hmm. We need more stories from inside, for sure. Yeah. And we've made that pitch before, so we'll make it again that if people have any texts that they can recommend to us, please hit us up. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So, Brenna and Lucia, do you folks want to do some YA bingo? Obviously. Sure do. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right, Lucia, as our guest, why don't you go first? I'd like to talk about rich people problems. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. Where is that coming from? What? <laughs> I just find it fantastic. I also like that, I mean, they're not this exceptionally rich family like this isn't extravagance but it also talks about you know it points out the fact that class privilege is also relative and Mm -hmm. these aren't just sort of like your your regular folks like they've got three cars well i think positioning the level of wealth that they have as normative is like one of the problems with sitcoms in general Mm -hmm. yeah okay anything else you want to add um abuse (laughs) again why just a little you know (laughs) again i mean i guess this is the problem of genre that we talked about before right like it's a fine line this is this is not explicitly meant to be a drama which i'm sure it could have been 
And so I feel like there is a fine line to sort of walk in terms of how it's portrayed. Mm -hmm. I just wish that it had been more explicitly named as abusive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Strong agree. And, you know, it could easily have been a Foster style series. And I think in many ways it would have been more successful working in that genre. I know that they were trying to do this genre bending thing. I'm not sure it worked. No, I think that's actually where they got into problems. Had they just acknowledged, you know what, what we're really interested in doing is more dramatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got a few. All right, Brenna. What have you got? Stunt casting, obviously, on the parents. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Dead parent. Yep. Yep. I think that we can say activism exclamation mark. <laughs> it's been so long since we've gotten the chance to use that one. I know. And in this case, like, I think in many ways the truest sense of it. <laughs> I am going to make an argument for musicality, which doesn't mean that I liked the music in the show. Okay. But they use music in order to signal the sitcom genre just as much as they use the laugh track. So we have hmm. the musical intro and outro to each and every scene. Mm-hmm. Right. And it is all very um, cheese ball, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it's very TGIF, right? Exactly. And even if you didn't want to give me that, then I think you have to give me musicality for the reliance on the sort of music as part of the perfect coming out that the brother character sort of enacts for himself. Right. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, in that vein, we also do have a queer secondary character. We sure do. We don't spend nearly enough time on him, but <laughs> we do on that aspect. Gaslighting, I guess. Hey, spin? Oh, just a touch in multiple formats. A little bit. Um, what else have you got, Joe? I've got the unlikely friendship between Nick and Molly. Yes. Because I think in other situations, mm-hmm. these two would not typically be friends, but because of circumstances, they become good friends. Yep, that makes yep. sense to me. You could even say Nick and the brother, too, if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Well, it kind of goes back and forth between them. Which one is the unlikely friendship and which one is the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is one of the confusing things about the show. Yeah. And then we have a bit of growing apart with that episode. I don't think you watched it, Joe, but Lucia, you know the one where she meets up with her friend from the before life? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was actually one of the more moving episodes, it is! I think. Because it's one of the ones that's the least... I don't know, reliant on a weird twist that doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think the other one that I would add in is convenient expertise because Nick seems to literally (laughs) be able to execute any grift she can think of. (laughs) A grift prodigy. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Guess what, Joe? What's that? We got a line. We got a bingo. (gasps) Woohoo! Callie, rich people problems, dead parents, abuse, stunt casting! <laughs> Crushing it. <laughs> oh, All right. So I think we're winding down. Um, Lucia, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so glad you were here to talk about this show because I don't think Joe was 100% bought into how interesting this is. And I'm grateful <laughs> to you for selling it with me today. <laughs> Thank you for having a podcast that I can badger you about and be like, hey, do you want to do this thing I'm really interested in? <laughs> <laughs> is this nepotism <laughs> on that note um if people wanted to find you on the twitters to continue this conversation about no good nick where would they go you can find me on twitter at empathy warrior 
Awesome. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where can they find you to yell at you about the fact that you didn't love this show as much as you should? Have? <laughs> I am at to be still my remote and that's the letter B. And if you want to find both of us to talk about the show, you can find us at hashtag HKHSpod. And for longer mail, send it to HKHSpod at gmail.com. Next week, Joe, we are turning our hand to a comic-ish. Ish? Yeah. So we're looking at Diary of a Teenage Girl by Phoebe Gleckner. Yes. I feel like we're going to have to practice saying her last name before next week. Yeah, or even like I could start by looking it up. Um, so yeah, so <laughs> this is one uh, that has been on my shelf for a really long time. And I have not read it yet because every time I pick it up, Joe, it's so long. <laughs> Quite the tome. It's true. <laughs> but it's obviously an important classic in the realm of like uh, like alternative comics. So I'm excited to read it from that perspective. And I hear the film is quite good. I'm excited, yeah, because the director, Mariel Heller, is one that I paid close attention to. She's done a couple of really standout films in the last few years, including Can You Ever Forgive Me, as well as the... Whichever the Fred Rogers one, that's not really about Fred Rogers. It's about dads. That Won't one. you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? Thank you. Yes. And also the film is celebrating its fifth anniversary. So that's part of the reason why we decided to program it. Nice. So thanks again to Lucia for joining us today. And um, until next time, I shall see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Stay safe.